Please take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 5 as we continue our study of the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher who ever lived, our Lord's Sermon on the Mount. My son Josh and his friend Taryn are with us this morning here on the front row. Many of you know about Josh from reading the Last Hunt book. Well, this is Josh in the flesh. And I'm glad my son could worship with us today. Matthew chapter 5, verse 14. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The film, The Finest Hours, depicts the amazing true story of the rescue of the crew of the SS Pendleton. It was a T2 tanker that was broken in half by massive 40 to 60 foot waves in a nor'easter off the coast of Massachusetts back in February of 1952. A brave crew of just four Coast Guardsmen set out in a little 32-foot-long lifeboat that was motorized to rescue the crew, even while those towering waves were battling the coast. The waves were so high that at one point they tossed the tiny lifeboat up into the air, flipped it on its side, and when it came smashing down on the water, it shattered the windshield, it ripped the compass from its mount, and the Coast Guardsmen were then left unable to navigate the seas. They literally had no direction at all. They ultimately were able to make it to the sinking tanker, and although the little boat was only designed to hold 12 people, they were able to rescue 32 crew members in the tiny vessel. And then they tried to make their way back to where they thought the shore might be. And in the fictionalized version of the true story, the people of the local town recognized that they were lost and in trouble when they didn't arrive back as soon as they were expected. And so they all went to the pier at the nearby harbor, and all of them pointed their vehicles out towards sea and in unison turned on their headlights. And those beaming headlights penetrated the snow and the fog of the storm and guided the Coast Guardsmen and the rescued crew back to safety. Those men who were nearly dead from hypothermia, from the wet and from the cold were saved by the power of the light. 
Jesus calls his disciples to be the light that guides others to salvation too. Through righteous living and through bold proclamation of the gospel, we are to shine the light that draws lost souls to Jesus Christ for the glory of our heavenly Father. The Lord Jesus teaches us here, first of all, that his disciples are to live righteous lives that draw others to God. Now, although we all probably have a vague sense of what Jesus means when he says, you are the light of the world, we might struggle to interpret this precisely and specifically. I would argue that we can clearly understand what Jesus is commanding here only if we explore what the metaphor light means in the Old Testament, in first century Judaism, in the New Testament, and particularly in the context of the Gospel of Matthew. And when we look at the immediate context here in the Sermon on the Mount, we already pick up some really important clues. You'll notice, for example, if you compare verses 13 and verses 14, that these seem to be examples of what is known as Hebrew synonymous parallelism, where the same thing is expressed into slightly different ways. Notice, you are the salt of the earth and how closely it parallels you are the light of the world. You are matches you are, and of the earth matches the synonymous of the world. That clues us into the fact that whatever Jesus meant by the metaphor of salt is similar to what he means by the metaphor of the light. We saw last week that salt was mentioned here as a purifying agent, something that cleanses, something that makes something else pure. And the light here has a similar function. In Bible times, light often symbolized good and darkness often symbolized evil. So the statement, you are the light, means that you are to exhibit the righteousness of God's own character before the world that is around you. And we see this use of the imagery of light in passages like Romans chapter 13. There Paul says, besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Now get this, the night is far gone, the day is at hand. So let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. What does it mean to cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light? He continues, let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Living in the light, in other words, means living in a Christ-like manner, exhibiting the character of Jesus Christ himself. 
And that's going to become clear when Christ continues in verse 16 and tells us exactly how we are to let our light shine. We let our light shine before others. How? By performing good works. What are good works? Well, the good works are the lifestyle, the deeds, the words, the character that are described in detail in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, I need to hit the pause button here and make one important clarification. Yes, when the Lord Jesus says, you are the light of the world, he's talking about us displaying the righteousness of Christ before the world. But we can't ever assume that that alone is enough. If we want to change the world, we cannot just live righteously, but we must also witness boldly. Uh, every now and then I'll hear a person say something to the effect, I don't really need to go out and tell others that Jesus is God, Savior, and King, that Christ died on the cross for our sins so that we could be forgiven, and that he changes the lives of his followers. All I need to do is, is live rightly, and that is my, quote, silent witness. Now, there is no such thing in the New Testament as a silent witness witness. Although we are to live righteously before the lost world, we are repeatedly commanded to boldly share the gospel. When Jesus commissions the 12 and sends them out in Matthew chapter 10, he will tell them to preach the gospel of the kingdom. He will say, there is nothing hidden that will not be revealed. There is nothing secret that will not be made known. Therefore, what you have heard in the dark speak in the light. What you have heard whispered in your ear, shout from the rooftops. We are to boldly proclaim that Jesus is God's Savior and King and that this is our only hope for forgiveness and life transformation. But just as righteous living Without a courageous witness is not enough. Neither is courageous witness without righteous living. Because whenever we proclaim the good news, our own lives should be exhibit A, demonstrating that the gospel of Jesus Christ really does change sinners' hearts and lives. I was visiting with one of our deacons this week, and he told me that he's been mentoring a uh, businessman for months. And finally, in the middle of one of their mentorship conversations, the person said, hold on, let's stop just one minute. I've got to ask you something. Why are you so different from everybody else that I know? Why is it that, that you are kind, that you are compassionate, that you are gentle? Why is it that you seem to have peace and don't get stressed out by everything that's going on in the world? And it was an open door to share a bold witness. But I promise you that bold witness would have meant nothing had that man not seen a change in our brother's life. But... Because bold witness was coupled with a changed life. The light penetrated the darkness. 
and a young man became a follower of the Lord Jesus. Now, we've already discussed the fact that some people will be annoyed by the righteous living of the follower of the Lord Jesus. Back in the Beatitudes, Jesus warned that some will be persecuted for righteousness sake because the fact that we choose to live differently is like a silent indictment against those who are living sinfully. They will lash out. They will attempt to hurt us because they are offended by our different way of living. But Christ goes on to say here that that is not always the case. Although sometimes our righteousness is like an annoying glare that people just want to get away from, sometimes our righteousness is like another kind of light, like the flickering blaze in the fireplace that makes people want to draw near and huddle around it and bask in its warmth and light. You see, light can have two very different effects on different creatures. You've seen it when you've overturned a log or a, a rock out in the woods. And some of those little creatures, the instant that they're exposed to light, begin to scurry underground and frantically escape the glare. But then there are other creatures that are drawn to the light. Think, for example, of flipping on a porch light on a hot summer night and how it attracts winged insects from all around. And what Christ is telling us is sometimes your righteous lives will be like that too. Rather than an annoying glare, rather than something that people try to escape from and hide from, your righteousness will have the positive effect of drawing others to God because it manifests the glorious character of God before their very eyes. The Lord Jesus also teaches that his disciples are to share his mission of bringing salvation to the ends of the earth. And here's what I'm getting at. Ordinarily, the words, you are the light of the world, or something to that effect, are spoken to the Messiah in the Old Testament. And the fact that the Lord Jesus now directs the same statement to his disciples makes it clear that followers of Christ are to be engaged in Christ on mission. We are to pick up where he left off in his outreach to the world. And the second thing that we need to note here is that it is the very world that is our mission field. Jesus didn't say to the 12, you are the light of Judea. He didn't say you are the light of Galilee. He didn't say you are the light of the land of Israel. He said you are the light of the world from one corner of the earth to the other. You are to exhibit my righteousness for my glory. Isaiah 42, chapter 6, God says to the servant of the Lord, the Messiah, I will make you a covenant for the people and a light to the nations. 
Then in Isaiah 49, 6, again, words to the Messiah. I will make you a light for the nations to be my salvation to the ends of the earth. Against that background, when the Lord Jesus tells the twelve, you are the light of the world, the disciples will understand we are to participate in the mission given by the Father to the Messiah in the Old Testament. And that mission includes bringing salvation to all the peoples of the world. And this, of course, fits with a familiar theme now in the Gospel of Matthew. Remember in Matthew 1.1, we read that Jesus is the son of Abraham, which means that he's that promised descendant of Abraham that will fulfill the Abrahamic covenant and God promised in your seed, that is in one of your descendants, all the nations on earth will be blessed. We saw that illustrated in the genealogy of the Lord Jesus in Matthew 1. Only four mothers are named and all four of them share income that they are Gentiles. They're Canaanites, Moabites, Hittites. So that... When we get later in chapter 1 and read that you shall call his name Jesus for he shall save his people from their sins, we are informed already that his people include not just Israelites, but even others included in his family line like the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Moabites, representatives of the Gentile world. The theme continues when we get to Matthew chapter 4 and the Holy Family is described as residing and Jesus' light shining in Galilee of the Gentiles. We see it in the fact that the first people to worship the Lord Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew are Magi from the East, Gentiles, representatives of other nations. We see the same truth in the fact that Jesus commends the faith of two people in the Gospel of Matthew, a Roman centurion and a Canaanite woman. We see it in the fact that Jesus says that his disciples are to go and make new disciples of all nations. When Jesus says, you are the light of the world, this universal focus of our mission is obvious. Jesus wants us to carry the gospel to people of every nation, tribe, and tongue so that representatives of every nation, culture, and language will stand before the throne and worship him in glory. This verse teaches us that the entire world is our mission field. Not just Raleigh, not just North Carolina, not just the United States of America, but the entire world is our mission field. But the Lord also teaches that righteous living and bold witness are essential traits of the true disciple. Our role as the light of the world isn't something that we can back down from. It's not something we can renege on. 
exhibiting the character of Christ and righteous living and boldly proclaiming the gospel is intrinsic to true discipleship. Notice how Jesus illustrates this. He says, a city set on a hill, what? He didn't say should not be hidden. He didn't say must not be hidden. He said a city set on a hill, what? Cannot be hidden. The Greek verb that is translated as cannot could be translated is not able to be hidden or it is not possible for it to be hidden. And what Christ is clearly saying is that the true Christian disciple will necessarily exhibit Christ's righteous character and boldly share the good news. A disciple of Christ who's not living righteously and who is not sharing the good news is as contradictory as light that does not shine, water that is not wet, fire that is not hot. It simply doesn't add up. If a city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, then neither can a true disciple refrain from shining the light by righteous living and bold witness. But then Christ moves on from an illustration in which it's impossible to not shine the light to one in which it would be foolish to not shine the light. Verse 15, he says, Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Now, why in the world would someone go to the trouble of lighting a lamp or a torch and then placing it under a bushel? dampening and dowsing the very light that they ignited. Hiding the light defeats the purpose of lighting the lamp. It results in a waste of oil and wick. It threatens to extinguish the tiny flame. And what Christ is pointing out here is that it is the very purpose of a lamp to exhibit the light. And in the same way, it is the very purpose of our existence as disciples of Jesus Christ to shine the light by righteous living and by bold testimony. I'm convinced that Christ is actually making an allusion to the Old Testament here, to the book of Judges. Do you remember the battle of Gideon and his 300 men against the Midianites? They were vastly outnumbered by the Midian army. But God told Gideon to take that handful of men and surround the Midian camp. And they were to have trumpets in one hand. And in the other hand, they were to have a torch that was covered with what the English translations of the Old Testament call a clay jar. And then as soon as Gideon sounded the trumpet, they were to shatter the clay jar so that the light of the torch certainly burst into an even brighter flame. And at that moment, they were to join in with the blast of their own trumpets. 
And when the armies of the Midianites heard the trumpet blast and saw those beaming torches, they immediately fled and ultimately were terribly defeated by the armies of the people of God. Now, what's the connection here? Well, here we have a light that is covered with what the Greek text calls a madion. Madion is the very same word that was used to describe the clay jars that covered the lamps or the torches of the men of the armies of Gideon in Judges chapter 7. So what Christ is saying is, light was temporarily hidden for a little while by Gideon and his armies. But when they shattered the clay jar and the light shone forth, look what God did. The enemies of God were defeated and the people of God enjoyed great victory. And the point that the Lord Jesus is making is if you've been hiding your light, it's time to shatter the jar. It's time to let the light shine forth. And when it does, you will be shocked by the amazing things that God may do. He'll put your spiritual enemies to flight. He will grant you spiritual victory unlike any you have ever known if you simply shatter the jar that is hiding your light. And the Lord Jesus goes on in this very same illustration to say they put this kind of lamp on a stand and it gives light to all who are in the house. In other words, you don't set an oil lamp in the ancient world on the floor. It won't be fully effective there. You put it on a lampstand, an elevated position, so that its light shines more broadly and farther. In other words, you shine the light in a manner that maximizes its potential and leads to it impacting the greatest number of people. Did you notice how we ended things? It, it gives light to not a few, not some, not most, to all who are in the house. And the all is that universalistic focus again that our mission field is the world. We're to share the light before all for the sake of their souls. But then Christ wraps up the section of the Sermon on the Mount by reminding us of this very important principle. The righteous character of the disciple is not a result of them just trying harder to live a moral life. The righteous character of the Christian disciple is not a result of an even greater resolve than they've known before to try to please God through righteous living. No, the righteous character of the Christian disciple is a gift from God that results from their new relationship to the heavenly Father. Jesus makes it clear in the final verse of this section that the disciple is not the author of the good works that he performs. He is only the channel of them. 
In other words, God the Father is the true source of those good works. He is the one who is performing them through us. Christ doesn't say, let your light so shine before others that they may see your good works and pat you on the back and say, attaboy. It doesn't say, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and applaud you for your personal goodness. Who receives the glory for our good works? The Father. Why? Because He is the one that is responsible for them. We didn't perform these good works ourselves. His power enabled us to perform them. And the character that He imparted to us inspired us to perform them. Uh, my dad was probably my biggest cheerleader and encourager uh, when he was alive. It was often expressed to me, his pride in me. But I noticed over the years that the things that I did that especially made my dad proud uh, were, were the ways in which I kind of walked in his footsteps either doing something he taught me to do or doing something for which I had inherited the ability from him. He loved it when I would do that kind of thing and he would just stand back and say proudly, he's just a chip off the old block. Well, that's the reason the Heavenly Father receives the glory for our good works. We're just chips off the old block. What Jesus is implying here is new birth theology. We're not just adopted by God when we are saved. We are born again. We are given spiritual birth by him. And because he imparts to us spiritual birth, he imparts to us his own character. What the apostle John calls in his first letter, the seed. What he means by that is God has, in a sense, imparted to us his genetic makeup, if you will, his DNA, so that God's children resemble their heavenly Father in their character and in their behavior. That's why the Lord Jesus will say we're to love our enemies. He says, you should do this because that's what your heavenly Father does. And the principle is, like father, like son, like parent, like child. Since we've been given spiritual birth by the Heavenly Father, we should resemble Him. The way we act should look like Him. We see it also in that great principle in Matthew 5, 48, where the Lord Jesus says, Be therefore perfect, even as your Heavenly Father is perfect. And what he's saying is, in new birth, God has imparted to us his own holy character. And if we're true sons and daughters of God by faith in Jesus Christ, we will display that resemblance to him in righteous living. Now, we, we all know that a, a little baby may not look much like his dad as a newborn. 
But what typically happens, they might say, well, he has his father's nose or he has his father's eyes and that kind of thing. There's some resemblance, but it may not be pronounced. But then what typically happens as that child grows and matures? They resemble that parent more and more and more and more. I didn't look much at all like my dad when I was a newborn baby. But as I got older and started gaining weight and losing hair and that kind of thing, people would look at me and say, well, he's the spitting image of his dad. And it's the same way in our spiritual lives. Immediately after the new birth, there is a resemblance to the Heavenly Father. His character has been imparted to us, but it may not be as obvious. It may not be as pronounced as it will be after we've grown and we have matured. And there our resemblance to the Father will become more and more apparent. But the nature that will ultimately lead to that resemblance was there all along. And with that same new birth theology in mind, the Lord Jesus says, you're going to let your light shine by doing good works, but when you do those good works, the glory will not belong to you. The glory will belong to the Heavenly Father because it is through inheriting His own character, through new birth, that you were enabled to live righteously. The point that I'm making is the righteous life of the Christian disciple is not a requirement for divine grace. It's the result of divine grace. It's not the cause of divine grace. It's the consequence of divine grace. It's not a prerequisite for divine grace. It's the product of divine grace. But when we experience the grace of God, there will be a dramatic transformation and our resemblance to the Heavenly Father and our character and behavior will be apparent. And in those final words, give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The Lord Jesus has revealed to us the highest and greatest motivation of everything that we do in the Christian life. Later on in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, he's going to say, don't do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. In other words, to receive their congratulations and their applause and their flattery. Don't do good deeds before men for your own vain glory. And some people have assumed from that that we're only to perform good works privately, never publicly. No, that's not what Jesus says. Jesus isn't so much concerned about the location in which we perform good works as he is the motivation that drives our good works. Because an act is only truly good when we do the right thing for the right reason. And the right reason is never our vain glory. The right reason is always the glory of the Heavenly Father. This is the supreme motivation for the Christian life. That's why the shorter Westminster Catechism asked, what is the chief end of man? What is our goal? What is our purpose? What are we about? And the answer was to glorify God and to enjoy Him 
forever. That's why one of the mottos of the Protestant Reformation was sole deo gloria, to the glory of God alone. Sometimes heard it said there's no end to the difference that God's people might make if it no longer matters who gets the credit. Well, the only one who should ever get the credit is the Heavenly Father. Every good thing we do should be for His glory and for His glory alone. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? We let our light shine by living righteous lives and by compassionately sharing the gospel. Let me remind you of what that gospel is. The gospel teaches us that we're all sinners. We've sinned against God in our thoughts, our words, our deeds. And there's nothing we can do to make up for our sins and make ourselves acceptable to a God who is holy and righteous and perfect. So Jesus Christ, God in human form, came into this world and lived for us the sinless, perfect life that we cannot live for ourselves. And then he went to the cross to bear the guilt and punishment for our sins in our place so that we do not have to suffer it. Because he died for our sins, our sins can be forgiven separated as far from us as the east is from the west, erased forever from the ledger of the heavenly judge, so that when we stand before God to give an account, we will be found blameless, we will be pronounced not guilty, not because of who we are and what we have done, but because of who Christ is and what Christ has done. He offers us this as a free gift through faith in Jesus Christ. Acts 16, 31 says, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. That means that we believe that Jesus is the Son of God, God in human form. We believe that He is the Savior who died on the cross for our sins in our place to grant us forgiveness. And it means that we accept Jesus as the king of our lives, submitting to his authority and living our lives for him, his way, not Satan's way, the world's way, or our own way, his way. And when we trust Jesus as God's Savior and King, that gift of forgiveness is ours. But it's not just a gift of forgiveness, it, it, it's a gift of transformation. Jesus accepts us just as we are, even in our sinfulness and guilt, even in our wickedness, but he does not leave us that way. Through that new covenant that he enacted by his death, he writes his law on our hearts. He grants His Holy Spirit to us to change us within. And that's why we are capable of the righteous living that
that the passage we studied today describes. Have you trusted Jesus in this way? If not, then please do so today. And when we sing in just a few moments, come forward publicly and tell me or one of our church leaders about your decision so we can tell you what the next steps are in your Christian life. And maybe you made that commitment long ago, but if truth be told, you've not been shining the light. Maybe it's because you've not been sharing the gospel boldly and compassionately, clinging to some idea of a silent witness. Give that up. Obey Jesus' commandment that what has been whispered in your ear should be shouted from the rooftops. And maybe you've not been shining the light because you've not been exhibiting the righteousness of Christ's own character in your daily living. And you're ashamed to try to witness to people because you know that your own lifestyle has only discredited the gospel. If that's you, repent. Commit yourself today to manifest the character of the heavenly Father that he produces in every true believer. And if there has been no change in your life, since you made some commitment years ago, then maybe you need to examine whether that commitment was authentic and genuine. Because the true gospel assures not only forgiveness of sin, but a miracle of new creation, where the old things are left behind and a new way of life comes about. Dear Father, we commit this invitation to you. We recognize the seriousness of this moment, how desperate the need is for us to shine the light because the world is a dark, dark place and it's only growing darker by the minute. Forgive us for our complicity in that growing darkness, for the times that we hid the light when we should have shown the light. Move us today to a new commitment to righteous living and courageous and compassionate testimony to the world, not for our vain glory, but for your glory alone. In Jesus' name, amen.